Thank you everyone for being here. I, I really, really love Nightlight. Nightlight is such a special event that we get to do. Um, I, in particular, am especially burdened about this teaching, and I've had, had the privilege of getting to do it a few times over the past um, year. But um, just in general, I think our church, with all the good that we accomplish very often, um, sometimes assume that people are being discipled in important ways when we ourselves are not providing the pathways for people to be equipped and discipled well. So that's why I really love Nightlight, because it's one of our really intentional opportunities to provide teaching on things that are really, really important for the Christian faith, super foundational, um, but also very applicable and very um, essential to honoring God with our, with our whole lives. So I'm really thankful to get to teach this. Um, again, my name is Leighton. If you don't know me, I'm one of our pastoral interns for the youth ministry. I help oversee the high school ministry. Um, so to start off our session, I have a cheeky little question for us to ponder. Um, and it's on your, on your notes. It's the opening question. What do you call someone who is passionate about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? What do you, <laughs> you don't actually have to answer because <laughs> it's kind of a joke, but also not a joke. What do you call someone who is passionate about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? You call that a Christian. <laughs> it's a Christian. <laughs> um, I heard, I heard a, a pastor use this, this question at the beginning of, um, of a talk on missions, and he actually got people to answer. <laughs> and there were like multiple people who answered Christian, or not a Christian, a missionary, a missionary, or like somebody who loves missions. <laughs> and he like publicly publicly embarrassed all of them for saying for saying missionary. But the answer is is supposed to be Christian, a Christian. Um, and that's essentially what I want to prove today. Um, I, I I want to prove from the Word of God that world missions is essential to the life of the Christian. It's essential to the life of the Christian. Um, so some of you might know that I aspire to be a, a missionary in Japan one day. And so um, being on staff uh, at Lighthouse is part of my training, uh, part of my equipping for world missions in the, in the future. Um, and that's the specific stewardship that the Lord has afforded me um, in, in his kindness to me, um, putting a lot of different things into my life to make it very clear that he wants me to steward my life for the sake of the gospel, specifically in Japan. Um, so it's a really huge privilege to bring us before the word today and show how God has really spoken clearly to us um, and, and very thoroughly about world missions, too. Um, so, um, yeah, my, essentially my, my topic is world missions and why missions is for you as a Christian. Why missions is for, is for you. Yeah, so um, I chose this, this topic not only because it's really important to me, but the premise of Nightlight is to have um, regular teaching on different areas of theology that are foundation, foundational to the Christian life. Um, and I, I chose this one in particular because I think that, um, especially at a church like ours that is actively trying to participate in world mission efforts, um, I think for all, all the big deal that we make about missions in our church, sometimes I'm tempted to believe that we do it not because we really know what it is or know why we should do it or know how we should participate, but just because we know that it's expected of us. Right. Um, sometimes I'm tempted to believe that maybe we don't actually know what missions is or, or like why we should do it. Um, and so on the one hand, it has to be important. Right. Like we have a whole month 
committed to evangelism and missions, like talking about outreach in our church. So of course it has to be important to us. And we have like an elder, a a global evangelism elder, who specifically is shepherding our church for the sake of being faithful to to God in this way. That's Gavin, if you didn't know that. But um, on the other hand, like how much of November, after October's over, November all the way through September again, Um, Do we actually spend, like, thinking about our active participation in global missions? Um, And then on top of that, how often do we have that thought, like, like, I don't, I guess, I don't think missions is really for me or for my personal participation, and I'll leave it to the people who have that, like, really specific call to, like, go to that place. Um, Like, I'll leave it to the Leightons and the Seiji's and the (laughs) Alessandros of our church. Um, and of the church as a whole to just let them take care of it because they're so passionate about it. Um, and, and I don't, I, I think that all the time, like, unfortunately. Um, and I think that mindset is very easy for us to settle into. Um, and so I don't want this session to just be like a fat guilt trip because that's not my intent in, in opening the scriptures to you. Um, But I do think when the scriptures present something very clearly and very comprehensively, um, there's, we're missing out on something if we're not um, participating, if we're not joining in. Um, If world missions is not an active part of our lives as Christians, I think that we've gotten Christianity wrong. It's possible that if we live a, a, a life that is separate from God's mission in the world, it's possible that we've misunderstood God and the purpose for which he saved us. It's possible that we've missed the point of our weekly gatherings, the point of our fellowship groups, the point of discipleship. It's possible that our understanding of Christian life is simply too limited. And so if that is the case, then we need a healthy dose of Bible doctrine to get us back on track. And we need, so we need to see what missions is and why we need to be a part of it. And so that's what I want to, I want to do. And specifically, I want to do that because I want you to enjoy life as it was designed to live. I want you to enjoy life as it was designed to live. And so my claim is that the Christian life isn't complete without missions. And I don't know that some people might hear that and say, oh, well, and stop making a secondary thing a primary thing. It's not that big of a deal. Um, but I promise that the things that I'm going to talk about are not my ideas. They're God's ideas because they're from his words. And um, for thousands of years, he's been proclaiming these truths from his own lips in the scriptures. So um, to give you the most compelling reason I can as to why you should care about missions Um, I'm going to show that the whole Bible is actually about missions. The whole Bible is actually about missions. Um, So here's my thesis. The story of the whole Bible depicts the triune God obtaining the glory that he deserves by saving for himself a people of worshipers from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The overarching story, to summarize, the overarching story of the Bible is world missions. And therefore... Our key idea, our main idea for today, world missions is necessarily the mission of every Christian because it is God's mission throughout the narrative of the scriptures. World missions is necessarily the mission of every Christian because it is God's mission throughout the scriptures. 
So let's embark on a journey from the page, through the pages of Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation to see the story of world missions. So there's a lot that we're going to cover. Um, it might feel overwhelming at points, um, but don't give up. Stay with me. As long as you're like hitting the main points and maybe like if you forget some of the details, it's totally okay. Um, but I'm going to try and walk through um, significant portions of the scriptures to show how, um, how world missions is the story of the Bible. So to help you kind of track along with the story, I want you to um, keep an eye out for two keywords or two main ideas um, that kind of pop up over and over again in the scriptures. And those two are the concept of worship, worship, and the second is seed. Um, and I'll use that interchangeably with offspring. Seed, offspring. So those, those two ideas come up a lot and are kind of the, um, the little land markers that we're going to use um, to, to track world missions through the, the, the scriptures. Okay? Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Our story starts in the Old Testament at the very beginning of time. Turn with me to Genesis 1, verse 1. Genesis 1, verse 1. I'm going to try and give you time to like turn to places, but I probably won't have time. And it's also in your notes. So Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. That's verses 1 and 3. As the curtain is drawn on the cosmic drama of redemptive history, a shocking presupposition rings forth from the first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Genesis 1-1 presents God as the presupposition of all truth. He is the first principle, the foundation of everything. All things center around and find their beginning and end in him. Outdating time itself, this God has always been lacking nothing. And yet as reality ticks into motion at the sound of his creative word, let there be light. It appears that this God has set out to accomplish a task. This is world missions in creation, point one, the creation mandate. Even from the very beginning of time in chapters one and two, we see that God has for himself a mission to make for himself a world of worshipers. After God creates the light and separates it from darkness on day one, he creates the heavens and the earth, dry land and oceans, plants and vegetation, the sun and the moon, birds and sea creatures and animals of many kinds. And then finally, he creates mankind in his image. And there are three realities that are fundamental to creation. Three truths that all of what God has made relies on for its existence and for its purpose. The first reality that Genesis 1 and 2 presents is monotheism. Monotheism, that there is only one God. The first four words of the Bible establish that one, only one God created. He is the sole actor. Nothing is left to chance and he is supreme over all creation. And two, because only this one God created, only this one God deserves all glory and honor 
and devotion and worship. All of existence rightly centers around this God. That's the first reality of creation. The second is its goodness. When God made his world, he says it is good. Verse 3. As God makes his world over and over again, he looks at his work and he says, that is good. It's whole. It's pleasing. And that is because God makes everything in perfect alignment with his own purity, his own wholeness. God's works are a reflection of his character, of his essence, including mankind, who he creates in his image. Adam and Eve are like God and made to live with him. And their relationship is supposed to be one of trust and obedience. Adam and Eve are given commands and they are to submit to God's authority and to know the goodness of being contingent on the non-contingent one. That's the second fundamental reality, goodness. And the third that we see is the creation mandate. The creation mandate. God makes Adam and Eve with a purpose. He wants them to fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth and subdue it. This is the creation mandate. One author says that in this creation mandate, God's ultimate goal in creation is to magnify his glory throughout the earth by means of his faithful image bearers inhabiting the world in obedience to his divine mandate. So we see in the beginning that God alone is creator and he alone deserves worship. Creation is good and reflects God in his goodness. And man exists to glorify God by enjoying his goodness and obeying his commands. God, from the very beginning of the Bible, wants a world brimming with people who love him, who worship him, and who reflect his righteous character and his righteous rule. And enjoying this perfect economy of his glory was how he would receive praise and honor that he deserves for all eternity. From the beginning, God has wanted a people of worshipers for himself. This is world missions in creation. And everything is perfect until we get to chapter 3. Point 2, Adam and Eve, the fall and the promise of a seed. The interruption of Edenic perfection occurs when Adam and Eve place themselves over God. Onto the scene comes the serpent to tempt Adam and Eve and things fall apart. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. The serpent said to the women, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. There are three significant reversals here. First, first Eve takes for herself authority to interpret God's word. It begins when Satan says, did God really say? Eve should have known that God, who is perfectly good, cannot say or command anything that is not also perfectly good. That should have been enough for Eve to be confident that God's command to not eat of the tree was good, true, and trustworthy, no matter what she thought about it. But instead of immediately saying to the, to the serpent, no, be silent, do not tempt me with doubt, Eve gives herself the authority to interpret God's word for herself. She says what she thinks God said. Second, Eve makes a God-level value judgment. She saw that the fruit was good for food. Throughout chapters 1 and 2, we saw that only God had the authority and the right to evaluate and declare that something was good. That was his responsibility, his prerogative. But Eve rejects God's sovereign authoritative word that the fruit was not good for food, and she elevates herself above God. She makes herself to be God over God. The third reversal is that Adam stands passively by. The whole time Eve is being tempted, you might be thinking, where is Adam? Why is he not protecting his wife? And verse 6b makes it clear that Adam is standing right there. Eve takes of the fruit. She turns to her husband and he eats. He should have stepped in. He should have stopped the serpent. But instead, he relinquishes his responsibilities as protector, as provider for Eve. And he allows her to be exposed and tempted. In these things, we see that the goodness of creation has been reversed. Man has become the authority to decide right and wrong instead of God. And here we are introduced to the greatest threat to God's mission. Man's idolatry of self. Self-exaltation. Taking from God the glory and the power and the authority that only God deserves. Every time Adam and Eve passed by the tree, they had the opportunity to look at that fruit and say, God, I trust you. I love you. I believe that you know better than I do, so I'm not going to eat. But now God wasn't ultimate anymore. Adam and Eve's original sin was not merely taking the fruit. Their sin was the heart attitude of self-exaltation out of which they ate. And now it's game over. Adam and Eve have now created a cosmic problem. God is perfectly holy without stain or even potential for corruption. And his creatures that are supposed to enjoy relational intimacy with him now deserve punishment because of their sin. They have done exactly the opposite of what they were made to do. 
They have stolen glory from God for themselves and they deserve death. This should be the end of the Bible. But what does God do instead? He lets Adam and Eve live. Glory thieves, rebels against his authority, those who deserved to die are allowed to live. And yet it's not just life. He promises them something much greater. Look at Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. So Adam blames Eve for their sin. But instead of responding to Adam, who is actually responsible, he instead turns to the serpent and God curses the serpent. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all of the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Adam and Eve have sinned. But before he pronounces judgment on Adam and Eve for their sin, he promises them the hope of redemption. He promises that there will be an offspring from Eve, literally a seed from her, that will crush the serpent's head. There will be active hostility between Satan and man, and though Satan will injure this offspring's heel, the offspring will deal a fatal blow to the serpent. All the way at the beginning, God has a plan for man's deliverance from their sin, and it all hinges on this seed of Eve. However, of course, there are consequences to Adam and Eve's self-exaltation, birth pains, the difficulty and futility of work, relational strife, a cursed world, and the abounding of sin and death. Adam and Eve want autonomy. And in their self-exaltation, they get a taste of it. They are stripped of their privilege of intimacy with God, and they are cast out of the garden as punishment. And now the only hope they have is that their offspring would somehow do what Adam failed to do. Somehow, the seed would defeat the serpent, restore their relationship with God, and fill the earth with worshipers. And so when Eve gives birth to two sons, Cain and Abel, you can just imagine the hope that overcomes her as she cradles her children in her arms and wonders, are you the one who will crush the head of the serpent who deceived me? Will you be the seed to save us? Tragically, their hopes are dashed when Cain murders his brother Abel. This generation proves to be evil too. And the generation and generation after generation of sinners only proves that mankind is depraved. Mankind is evil 
So much that God looks upon these people and says, I regret making them. And we're left thinking, how in the world is God going to create a world of sinless worshipers out of this mess? We look around the world today and the situation has not improved. We see terrible acts of sin on the news, sin in our relationships with others, sin in our own hearts. We are a mess. Mankind is broken, condemned, and lost. How will God make a people of worshipers out of us? As we progress in the narrative after Cain and Abel, the story of Noah's Ark only proves to us that though God has the power to wipe mankind off the face of the earth if he so wanted, for some reason, he shows mercy to Noah and his family. However, they are still cursed with sin and generations that follow only continue to produce the same heart of evil. What is God up to? Why does he let this persist? And from here, mankind only rebels against God and his mission in the world. A great example can be seen in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. This is the next point. Sinful man rebels against the creation mandate. Now, this might be a familiar story to us. Mankind builds a tower and God thwarts their plans, confuses their language, and scatters them all around the world. However, we need to read Genesis 11 carefully. What exactly is the motivation to build the Tower of Babel? Verse 4 tells us, look at Genesis 11, verse 4. The people say, let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. It's not that these people wanted to be in the presence of God. They are not trying to build a tower into heaven. They know that heaven is a spiritual place. They know that's not physically possible. This united people of one language is trying to build a landmark to keep people together. It's it's supposed to be a way to know where to stay and where to go back to. That's why they say, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. They don't want to go as God has commanded. This is active rebellion against God's mission. He said, cover the face of the earth, spread, fill the earth, subdue it. But they say, no, we know what's best for us. We will stay together. We will not obey your creation mandate. And so that's why in response, God descends and confuses languages and scatters the people leading to the development of different people groups across the world. Mankind is bent on resisting God, but God proves that he will have his way. God will have a world full of worshipers, even when those worshipers are insistent on worshiping themselves instead of him. And so in spite of man's rebellion, God acts in the next big stage of his plan with Abraham. Turn to Genesis 12. Abraham, the promise of land, seed, and blessing. So as a result of Babel, there are now these diverse people groups all across the earth. And God now speaks to a particular man named Abram, to whom he says in Genesis 12, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God elects Abraham to be the recipient of three significant promises. The first, go forth from your land to the land which I will show you, a promise for land. Second, you will have descendants and they will be many, a promise for seed, offspring. And third, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing, a promise of blessing. These three promises are how God plans to make a world of worshipers. He's going to multiply Abraham's offspring, give them a land to live in, and bless them so that they bless all the families of the world. And in doing so, God would receive the worship he deserves. However, there is still a problem. Abraham is a sinner. Abraham will only produce sinners. And the requirement for a relationship with holy God is holiness. So how is this going to work? As we continue in the narrative of the Bible, it's through Moses and the law that God elucidates the details. Moses, the kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Turn to Exodus 19. So by the time of the Exodus... God had grown and established the people of Israel, but then they, became, they become enslaved to Egypt, which is the unmatched power of the Near East at the time. And it's in this context of suffering and enslavement that God enacts a new phase of his mission by raising up Moses. God used Moses to confront Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler of the world, saying, let my people go so that they may worship. And we are reminded here of Genesis 1 that the battle that rages on is one of worship. Will the one true God be worshipped? Or will lesser gods steal his glory? Moses confronts Pharaoh, tells him to let the people of God go so that they can worship, but he doesn't listen. And in response... Um, The worship battle rages on when God brings the plagues. Ten disasters upon Egypt, each plague corresponding to and dethroning an Egyptian god. This is Exodus 12. The Nile River gods, Hopi and Knum, are drowned in a river of blood. Heket, the frog goddess of fertility, is decimated at the command of Yahweh. Aten, Ra, and Atum, the supreme gods and goddesses of the sun, extinguished as absolute darkness, falls upon the land for three days. And even Pharaoh's firstborn, he who was supposed to be God incarnate to the people of Egypt, was left lifeless at the hands of the angel of death. Here the creator says to the creation, I refuse to share my glory. I will be worshipped as supreme. There are no gods before me. And so in a glorious display of his unrivaled power, Yahweh God ravages Egypt and brings Israel out of enslavement. 
And then look at what he says to Israel in Exodus chapter 19. Verse 4, he says, If you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What God says here is incredible. The language that he uses in verse 5 is that of adoption. You shall be my treasured possession. Israel is being drawn into an intimate relationship with God as his own. And in verse 6, God goes even further. He doesn't just adopt Israel. He employs them. It's not just that God adopts them to be shown off or to just sit there and look pretty, but he has work for them to do. There's a purpose. Thus, this is Israel's mission statement. God saved them to be his priests, meaning that they were to be a bridge between man and God. Mankind who is estranged from their creator because of sin now has a way back to him. And the way that they were supposed to do that was by being a holy nation. A holy nation. And so to ensure this holiness, God gives Israel the law. It's a comprehensive set of rules and guidelines for Israel. And the way that it was supposed to work was that if Israel was holy, then God would dwell with them and he would bless them spiritually and material, materially. And they would enjoy fellowship as mankind was supposed to enjoy with God. And they were, and they were to show that they belonged to the one true God. And the neighboring peoples were to see that blessing and come flocking to Israel. They would see the unmatched, unmatched blessing of Israel and come running to worship the one true God too. And so if you look at a map of the Near East, there's a reason why the promised land is where it is. It's the cradle of civilization. It's the center of the ancient world. It's the place where the whole world convenes so that the nations could come flocking to Israel to worship the one true God. And that's how Yahweh would receive the worship and glory that he deserved from the world. And all Israel had to do was obey God's law. That's all they had to do. And yet, there's a problem here too. Has anybody here read the Old Testament law? Can anyone here obey the law perfectly? No. And this was true for Israel too. They couldn't fulfill their role because of sin. In love, God gives the Israelites the sacrificial system, a way they can make themselves clean by transferring their debt of unrighteousness to be paid for by the death of animals. But it is no, by no means a once and for all solution. Years and years of killing animals to pay the price of sin couldn't wash the Israelites clean of their blood guilt. So once again, the question is asked, how will it be possible for God to fill his earth with people who righteously display his character? Not even the chosen, elected people of God could do it. As the narrative continues, and as God takes Israel into the promised land, purges the foreign gods of the land, 
and establishes the nation in Jerusalem. Time and time again, God calls Israel to faithfulness to him, but Israel is unfaithful to God. And yet time and time again, God is gracious, patient, merciful, and long-suffering with them. Soon, however, the people cry out for a king. And although God had told them very explicitly that he was their king, although he told them that they did not need a king under his authority, God mercifully allows and anoints Saul as the first king of Israel. And wrapped up in this giving of a king is a hope that maybe this time Israel could do it. Maybe under the leadership of a good and faithful king, they could be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. However, their first king, Saul, despite starting with a humble heart filled with the fear of God, spirals out of control in disobedience and fear of man, resulting in the loss of his crown, the love of his people, and his very life. And the next king, David, was a man after God's own heart, and he was a promising candidate for a good and faithful king over Israel. However, even this king was far from perfect. His harem of wives and adultery with Bathsheba were proof. But it was to this humble king that God added a whole new level to his promise for Israel, even when hope seemed lost. In 2 Samuel 7, we see that God has not forgotten the promises he made to Abraham and Moses for land, seed, and blessing. And he says this in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring or seed after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. So God promises to raise up for David a son who will build a house for God. But then God goes even further to say, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The throne of David's offspring somehow would be established by God forever. There would be a seed from David who would reign eternally, whose kingdom would stand once and for all. And so there's so much hope in his son, Solomon. David knows that this is the son whose kingdom would be established by God, that this is the king who would build a house for God's name. And all the people of Israel at the birth of his son cling to this glimmer of hope of the exhilarating thought. Could this be the one whose kingdom and throne are established eternally? Solomon rises to be a great and wise king. He fulfills his assignment to build the temple, a house for God, the very place where God could dwell with Israel, the center of true worship of the one true God 
And as Solomon succeeds, the excitement rises and the question appears again, could this be it? The Davidic king promised by Yahweh God, the, initi- the initiation of God's, of Israel's role as a kingdom of priests. And at first it looks like it. Under Solomon's faithful leadership unto God, Israel's prosperity in Jerusalem grows. And as God dwells with them, and as they rightly worship him in the temple, these foreign peoples start to flock to Jerusalem to be blessed, just like how God promised to Abraham. In 1 Kings 10, we see the Queen of Sheba coming to Solomon, who in awe at the wisdom of Solomon and prosperity of Jerusalem practically has the wind knocked out of her. And after praising the name of Yahweh, she leaves with whatever she asked for, everything she wanted. The blessing of foreign nations has begun to take place. This is exactly what God promised would happen to Israel if they were obedient to him the nations would begin flocking to Israel to praise Yahweh and be blessed. And yet even when the excitement was so high, soon after the dedication of the temple, King Solomon fails. 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 13. King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which Yahweh had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not go along with them, nor shall they go along with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away. Verse 6, And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and did not follow Yahweh fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus he also did for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now Yahweh was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel. God in love had intentionally purged the land of idolatry when Joshua took Israel into it. But now in a blatant act against God, Solomon brings idolatry back into the land. Solomon undid what God had done for Israel so that they could be faithful to him. His idolatry compromised Israel's purpose as the people of God. And it's at this point that false worship becomes embedded in Israel. Israel spirals into failure. And it reveals what was true about Israel from the very start 
They were a rebellious and idolatrous people. Israel soon bows to pagan gods and becomes just like the nations. Instead of being set apart, they grovel before the nations and submit to them or wage war against them instead of blessing them. They become extremely ethnocentric. They begin to hate other peoples instead of moving to bless them. And this is rock bottom. Hope is lost. God, in judgment against idolatrous Israel, divides the nation into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom quickly descends into godlessness and is decimated by Assyria. And soon after, the southern kingdom of Judah is conquered by Babylon and dragged into captivity. The whole of Israel has gone off the deep end. They've done what was right in their own eyes. They've worshipped other gods and rejected the worship of the one true God. They're enslaved under Babylon. Jerusalem is fallen. The temple has been destroyed. And this really looks like the end for the people of God. And they got exactly what they deserved. It seems like there is no hope for mankind to be in relationship with God. But it's in this dark moment when the prophet prophet Isaiah enters with a word of hope. Though God had brought judgment upon Israel for her idolatry, and though he would also bring decimation and captivity to Judah, there would be a day of deliverance, a second exodus, one that would not just redeem Israel, but all the nations of the earth, one where God's reign would be unquestioned. And the result of that day would be a miraculous reconciliation. Look at Isaiah 19, verses 23 through 25. Isaiah writes, In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria a blessing in the midst of the earth. And the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. We easily understand Israel, my inheritance, but Egypt, my people, Egypt, the people who had enslaved and tortured the people of God, adopted in the same way Israel is? And Assyria, the work of my hands? Assyria, the kingdom that decimated the northern kingdom? How? Why? Isaiah gives the answer in chapter 42. 
God will accomplish this work by sending a servant. Verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. God promises that there will be a servant who will be the king of Israel. And he will reign over all the earth. And how will he come into his kingship? How will this servant sent from God accomplish his rule? Unlike how the Israelites had expected when they first asked for a king over Israel, it would not be by conquest. It would not be by military rule. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. At a time when it seems there is no hope for mankind to be freed from sin and reunited with God, this promised servant would suffer and die for sinners so that they would be saved. And after hundreds of years of despair for mankind, that is exactly what God did when he sent his very own son, Jesus, the Messiah, to be born of the line of David as the son of Abraham. Finally, we get to the New Testament, and in Jesus, everything changes. The Gospels, the seed has come. Here, the hope of the New Testament, wrapped up in one verse, Matthew 1, 1, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the seed of David, the seed of Abraham. Jesus comes onto the scene and it's clear that he is everything that we have been waiting for. Adam had failed, all of Israel had failed, but God was not done. By by mentioning the name David, the faithful king of Israel, and Abraham, in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Matthew makes it clear that God has not given up on his mission from all the way at the beginning of Genesis. And as Jesus lives and as he teaches time and time again, he fulfills the entire Old Testament. Where everyone else fails, Jesus alone stands victorious. How? For example, Jesus is the better Adam. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, depicts Jesus' temptation by Satan. And the passage shows us that Jesus is truly the Son of God as Adam was. Jesus is tempted with food in the same way that Adam was. Jesus is tempted with authority independent of God as Adam was. Jesus is tempted with everlasting life independent of God as Adam was. And yet he does not sin as Adam did. In Jesus, we have a picture of Eden recapitulated. 
with Christ as the new, faithful, sinless Adam. After facing all of the same temptations Adam did and triumphing over Satan, establishing his authority, he paves the way for a new humanity, one that could walk rightly with God. But Adam's isn't the only role that Jesus fulfills. Jesus is the better Israel. He fulfills the law and he mediates between God and mankind as the great high priest. Everything that Israel as a people failed to do, he does perfectly. Jesus is the better David. He leads and rules over his people as a king, faithful unto God from the line of David, and comes to establish his throne forever. But how is it that Jesus will accomplish universal blessing, salvation, and redemption? Jesus accomplishes it by taking up his role as the suffering servant. Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus, fully God and fully man, makes atonement for sinners by suffering and dying. This is the turning point of all history. The ancient problem of the willful rebellion of sinful mankind is now remedied in Jesus Christ at the cross. Jesus, the perfectly holy one, mediates the salvific blessing of God to all the families of the earth, ultimately by standing in their place as a substitute, by dying for sinners, by taking on himself the wrath of God deserved of all peoples for their own failure to be holy, by allowing himself to be beaten, spat upon, mocked and reviled, horrendously murdered and condemned before God so that all for whom his blood is shed would never face the same fate. Where no one could stand righteous before God, instead Jesus himself stands and upon himself at the cross, he exhausts the whole wrath of God for sin so that anyone who repents and believes in him would enjoy blessing. And though Christ dies on the cross, he is not defeated by that death, but he rises from the dead. And the curse of death that plagued Adam and Eve all the way back in Genesis 3 is finally undone at the resurrection. Jesus is the promised seed of Eve from Genesis 3.15, who is struck by the serpent in his death, but ultimately rises and crushes the serpent's head in his resurrection. Sin and death are defeated by Jesus' resurrection life, and all who have faith in him can be adopted by God. It is finished. It is done. Redemption, true salvation, true worship is here. The seed that Adam and Eve longed for, the spotless lamb that Israel needed, the mighty king that David foreshadowed, the suffering servant that Isaiah foretold, the universal blessing promised to Abraham has come. And he's come specifically to die for people from every tribe and nation. Luke 24. The path to universal blessing of the whole world has been opened by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the news 
that is so good that it has to be shared with the whole world. And that is exactly what Jesus sets into motion when he comes to his disciples and says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Hearing Jesus say these words is as if he's telling his people, his disciples, to be fruitful multiply and fill the earth with people who worship God rightly. The Great Commission is a reinstatement of God's creation mandate, now with a new twist. Instead of being attractional like Israel, the church is to be missional. The Israelites were commanded to stay and obey. They were to invite the Gentiles to relationship with God. But the church, by contrast, is now commanded to go and make him known. We as Christians are given the task of proclaiming throughout the world that the Savior has come. There is forgiveness and true eternal life for all who would believe. And we do it by going, preaching the gospel, baptizing, and by teaching all that Christ has commanded, all with the confidence that Jesus has all authority and is with us until the end of time. This is the missionary task. And it's not just for missionaries. It's for every single believer of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the King of heaven and earth, the Savior of the world, now through us, his followers, Christians, is making for himself a people of worshipers who are redeemed by his blood. And the book of Acts documents the story of the followers of Christ embarking on this journey to go and make Christ the Savior known. And something miraculous happens at the start of this book. So Jesus com commissions the disciples to carry on his work. And then uh, at Pentecost, God undoes the scattering of the people across the world that he did at the Tower of Babel. When God gives his Holy Spirit to dwell within those who had placed their faith in Christ, God displays his heart for the nations by making them to speak in various languages of the world, real human languages. This church, the people of God, those redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and counted as of Abraham by faith, were now to spread the good news of salvation in Christ across the world for the sake of salvation of people of every tribe tongue and nation. This was to be the new kingdom of priests and holy nation who donned the blood-bought holiness of their Savior, who bled and died and rose again. And the rest of Acts shows us the pattern of Christ's continued work throughout the world. This is biblical missions. Christians, who go and make disciples, who gather into local churches, who then go and make more disciples, who gather into local churches, who go and make more disciples, who gather into local churches, and the gospel breaks through the whole world. Missionaries like Paul and Barnabas are set apart for the work of ministry and sent to unreached peoples, and they evangelize. 
then plant churches, then move on to plant more, and the missionary task is underway. By the work of the Holy Spirit through these faithful believers in Acts, the church begins to spread everywhere, and in the rest of the scriptures, we see the church living out to the Great Commission in the epistles, obeying her call to go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. And 2,000 years later, here we are. 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ is alive and well, seated at the right hand of the Father, accomplishing the work that he set out to do at the very beginning of time, all through his humble and weak but spirit-empowered and redeemed servants of faith. We, today, are tasked with the same mission that Christ has, to make disciples of all the nations. We Christians are part of something much bigger than we often recognize. The church exists for missions. It is through his church that God is working toward the goal that he determined in the Garden of Eden to fill the earth with right worshipers. The story could end here. This could be enough for us to be faithful in our calling to go and make disciples. But by his grace, God lets us know the end of the story too. Where is this global movement of the redeemed headed? Turn to the book of Revelation. Chapter 7, verse 9 says, After this I looked, John says, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. In chapter 22, And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is where time is headed. 
There will be a day when Christ returns, when death is put to death and sin is destroyed, when creation is made anew, and when purified, resurrected Christians of every tribe, tongue, and nation will live bodily forever, worshiping before the throne of God. And from that throne, the abundant joy and blessing of the river of the water of life will flow through the eternal city. And the tree of life that was once banned from all human access, lest they live forever in sin, will be the very source of sustenance and life for the children of God. And by the tree of life will the nations be healed. God himself will dwell with his people and they will reign with him forever. We will reign with him forever. This is the fulfillment of the creation mandate, the Abrahamic promise, the Great Commission. God is preparing us for that day. And the only life worth living is the one that joins in on what God is doing. It's the life that receives salvation in Christ, submits to his lordship, revels in his soul-satiating glory, lives for his exaltation, and participates in the work that he is doing to save people from every nation of the world. You see, the, the point of life, of your life, is much bigger than just you. Your salvation your belonging to this church, your vocation, your schooling. All of these things are not just for yourself. God has saved you to be part of his work for his glory. And therefore, participating in God's mission is the only path for a life well lived. That's why John Piper can faithfully say that all Christians are, either, are doing one of these three things. In missions, you are either going, you're sending, or you are sinning. You're either a goer, a sender, or you're being disobedient. And my point in presenting this giant overview is that you deny yourself of Christian life, the fullness of Christian life, if you don't center yourself around Christ and make his mission your mission. You may be saved, and it may be a wonderful thing to enjoy the promise of eternal life. And you may get to enjoy so many good things in life, but you have to ask yourself, what will matter in the end? When I die and stand before God and he judges my works, what will he say was characteristic of my life? What will he say was characteristic of your life? Will he say that it was a life well spent? Or will he say that you wasted it? This is the exact issue that Paul raises in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. He says that each Christian's work will become manifest for the last day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, 
though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. On the last day, everyone who acknowledged their depravity and confessed their their need for a Savior, throwing themselves upon the saving work of Jesus Christ alone and receiving alien righteousness from Christ that they didn't earn for their salvation, will be carried into the presence of God for eternity. They will be counted as as sheep and not goats. But the lives of all of those believers will also be tested by fire. And if you live and build upon the foundation of Christ with human wisdom, On the last day, whatever you build will burn away. It will all have been meaningless. And Paul makes it very clear that in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, that what will be burned up is lifestyles of self-centeredness, promotion of the self, displays of human adequacy, values of self-reliance, self-love, the good of self, It's those who preach something other, something more or something less than Christ and him crucified. The same sins of self that disqualified Adam and Eve, that disqualified the people of Israel, and that have disqualified so many others will do the same to us. And so we make life count by living for Christ and not ourselves. Make his mission, your mission. For some of some people, for some of you, if the Lord so wills, it will mean that you will give up success in the world and comfort in the world to go and preach the gospel to an unreached people group. For some, it will look like giving up the comfort of money and finances to faithfully send those people through getting involved in missions here at Lighthouse. But if you are in Christ, no matter who you are, you are called to one of these, sending or going. Friends, remember that the scope of God's mission is global. He wants people from all over the world. But do you know how many unreached people there are in the world? How many people who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ and might never hear? 3.2 billion people, 3.2 billion people right now living on this earth. Precious people created in God's image, both living in willful rebellion against God and suffering under the tyranny of Satan's enslavement through sin, who are marching their way into hell because they have no access to the truth. Dear Christian, I pray that your heart is grieved for the lost. But I also pray that there is a fire set ablaze in your soul. God has purposed and is intent on using you to bring his elect in the unreached people groups to saving faith and passionate worship of the glorious Christ. In obedience under the sovereign hand, of the mighty God, and by the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and through the empowerment of and the joy of his own Holy Spirit, we have work to do. And on the last day, may our lives escape that ash heap 
of eternal insignificance. In application, I have two really simple encouragements. The first is to seriously pray about going. Seriously pray about going. Take Christ's command to go and make disciples seriously by taking time today to just humble yourself before God and ask, God, would you have me go? Pray, Lord, is it your will for myself or for me and my family to move abroad to preach the gospel to an unreached people group? And some of you might be thinking, wow, this is really hard. Um, this is really convicting, but uh, it's just not for me. I have to care for my family or uh, I'm in this career. I can't uproot now. It's too inconvenient. Um, we don't, I don't have the means. It'll be too hard. And of course, there are going to be stewardships for each of us and circumstances that, um, that God ordains in our lives for us to stay. Of course, that the way that, uh, that, like that, that specific thing that you stay for might be the way that God has called you to honor him with his life. And that's a good reason to, to not go. That, that, would, that, would be, that would be required of you to not go. But I firmly believe that this overview of the scriptures requires that all Christians, no matter who you are or what specific stewardship that you do have, to ask humbly before God, do you want me to go? And if it isn't his will, then he won't send you. But if it is his will, he will. And he'll give you all the strength and all the conviction and all the resources and all the hope and all the joy that he deems necessary for his sending you to the lost. You will not go alone. If you are in Christ, you have died. You're a new creation. Your life belongs to God. It is Christ who lives in you and empowers you to his work. He gets to decide how you live your life and he decide, what he decides will always be what is best for you. So if you want what is best for you, ask God if he would send you to preach the gospel to an unreached people group. Take time to pray or to meet with your family and to lift that prayer to the Lord together. My second encouragement is to love the church. Sending starts today. It's really, really easy to make missions about just the people on the field, but realize that even what we do like today at Nightlight and the things that we do at our fellowship groups and in our small groups and on Sunday mornings, all of that contributes to the end of missions. Vigorously loving and serving the church is a great way to participate in world missions. Faithful gospel pro proclamation in the world starts with healthy churches, churches that believe and love the truth and delight in living it out. That's where God-glorifying missionaries come from. And so your church needs you this week. The people of God needs you this week. Lighthouse needs your godliness, your humility, your care, your sacrifice, your service, your love. So vigorously seek to love and build up your church family, and may our church be used by our God to preach the good news to the ends of the earth. Let me close this in prayer.
Dear Jesus, we thank you for the glorious picture of global redemption that you paint in your scriptures. Father, we recognize and confess that your plan in the world is to glorify your son, Jesus Christ, by saving a people that includes individuals from all around the world. And we look forward to that day when Christ, who is our life, appears, when we are with him in glory, and when we hear the resounding voices of all your people who you have saved, singing your praises for all eternity. God, we know at the same time that there are people who who don't know Jesus and who can't know Jesus. You don't have access to him. 3.2 billion people right now who are marching their way into hell. God, would the recognition of the reality of the state of missions in our world compel us to good work? Would that be the case for us individually? Would you help us to pray that prayer? God, I'm, I'm scared. I'm inadequate for the task that you called me to. But I can't, I can't run away from this picture of redemption, of missions in your Bible. I can't help be ca- but be captured by... This, this glory that you set forth, that you show us in your son, Jesus Christ, in his plan to redeem people from the world. So would we be captivated by your word? And, and would you make us heartbroken, convicted, and excited to join in on your mission? May we know how weighty of a task you've put us to. Would you transform us to be fit servants for your end? We ask that you would help us, Father, because you alone are sovereign. Only you have the power to turn a sinner to a saint. You've proved that in our own lives. You've proved that only you can save the lost. So empower us to do your will wherever you may place us, whether that's to stay or to go. And may you have your way in our lives and in your world for the great end of the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray, amen.